Would you thank our Biggie uh, choir and team one more time? so fun to have them and to be able to celebrate. And it took me a little while, but I have recovered from the shock of Andrew. He's actually watching live and he texted me and um, he actually missed his surprise because uh, they had recorded it just in case something, but he didn't get, he said, I got off work a little late. We had one thing come up and they, they, they work seven days a week over there. But buddy, thank you uh, for uh, your love. It's, been, it's, it's awesome to get that greeting. Yeah. And your love, that's what they, they're saying. So uh, good to be back. Some of you are aware that I was on a trip with one of my other sons. Uh, uh, if you're new, uh, my wife will tell you she has three boys. Three of them are sons. The other one's me. And I uh, love doing stuff. We've been talking with Andrew and that middle son, Joel, how they wished that they were with Stephen and me these last uh, 10 days or so. On New Year's Day, Stephen, who's serving in an orphanage down in Bolivia, volunteering for year, wanted to give a year of his, his first year out of college. He was a business theology major, and before he dives into corporate America, wanted to give a year of his, his time to this orphanage. He's the only male uh, figurehead there and uh, role model. Uh, there's the husband of the woman who owns the orphanage, but he's off working, and so it's been a pretty draining time, but also very fulfilling. And Stephen, on New Year's Day, said, hey dad, what about coming down and spending some time with me in Patagonia and let's do some, some climbing and some hiking. And the next day, my mom went to be with Jesus. And so that confirmed with me, I wanna seize every moment that I can. So I cashed in on some frequent flyer miles and Stephen knew that. He said, dad, you can get down here free with all the, the, the mileage points you've got. So that's not an excuse. So went down, we actually stayed sometime in a, in a backpacker's hostel, a youth hostel. I haven't done that since college and I won't do it again uh, either, but, um, but we, the primary thing that we were focused on was doing some trekking and climbing and hiking on a peak called uh, Mount Fitzroy. And you can, it's in Patagonia as uh, we were driving up to it in the bus. I took a, a photo just right out the dirty windshield and you can see the landscape. And Fitzroy is famous because if you're a Patagonia clothing fan, the logo for Patagonia clothing is patterned just after that particular peak. And we trekked all, we did climbed, hiked about over 60 miles. Uh, Stephen and I did over the, those few days. There was uh, beautiful weather that we had to deal with, and that was wonderful. There was also not so good weather that we dealt with. In fact, there was another time there wasn't just cold, but it was sleet, 50 mile an hour winds coming straight at us. I didn't take a photo because I didn't want to get my hands out of my pocket and deal with my iPhone at that point. The terrain sometimes was easy and other times the terrain was not so easy. But as we went through that journey, we reflected back on something we kind of chuckled at at the beginning of our trip and it was a sign that we saw at the beginning of the wilderness area. It was in Spanish. Now Stephen was my translator the whole time. It was fun hearing him yak away with cab drivers and others. But this is what the sign said. Now, do we have a native, somebody, I know we do, somebody who's a native Spanish speaker. You grew up speaking Spanish. I would, would you, if you'd be willing to read this, anybody? 
Come on. Raise your hand. It's, come on up. Okay, come on up. Oh, here we go. Laura, here you go. Read it away. You grew up in Argentina, didn't you? So, there you go. So t- read that for you. This is what we were told via a sign at the beginning of our trip. Usted está transitando por una zona agreste que conlleva riesgos a su salud originados por las fuerzas de la naturaleza. Wow. Wow. There you go. So, beautiful. Thank you for doing that. And I know some of you are thinking, wow, that sounds beautiful. It does. But there's a translation. In fact, I took a photo of it. Thankfully, there's a translation in English. Here's the translation. You are now entering a wilderness area in which your personal health is at the disposal of the natural forces. On the other side, it says, turn around and go back. No, it, it didn't say that. But uh, what I loved is how they came up. What, what would be a graphic that could go with that? It's, so you got the tree branch falling on somebody. Tree branches were the least of our concerns when we were doing some of the climbing. But uh, we laughed at it, but then it became more and more true as we went on and encountered some of those high winds on some of the peaks. I, I actually, that's a phenomenal statement. And that statement should be given in a little plaque along with every birth certificate When anybody is born, a few adjustments, you are now entering a fallen world in which your personal health or your human health is at the disposal of the natural sinful forces. That'd be a lot of, that'd be real helpful for people to just, let's go ahead and establish that from the get-go. Okay, nobody told you that, but you know that by now. You, your human health has been at the disposal of sinful forces from the outside, from the inside, stuff we can't explain, some we can't explain. And there's a hunger that we all have and it's for peace. Because what those natural forces do, what those central, sinful forces do, is they create a hurricane in our hearts. And some of you, as I prayed earlier, arrived with that kind of hurricane. What's the gospel have to do with that? Everything. And what's this Sunday have to do with that? It's powerful. Because what we're celebrating is Palm Sunday, the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. Mainly it's church historians that have referred to it as that. But it was far more than that. It was something that was pivotal in Jesus' life and journey. And what we're going to do is spend some time walking through what that day looked like for Jesus, and it's going to apply to whatever point of stress you've got going on right now. What is the hurricane going on in your heart? Maybe it's a mild storm. Maybe it is an outright hurricane. Maybe the people around you know what's going on. Others of you are suffering alone. But I want to spend some time looking at Palm Sunday from an historical biblical standpoint, seeing how it applies to all of those destructive things and stressful things that are going on in our lives. So go ahead and bring that stress point up and have it front and center as we unpack this. Now to unpack it, we're going to need a map. Now when Stephen and I were climbing, 
It was way beyond, there's no GPS up there. So this was my friend. It was kind of expensive to have it. I would have paid even more because you don't want to go into the wilderness without it. We came across a hiker, I was told last night, don't, don't identify the gender, just let people guess. But it was a hiker, a lone hiker. We were out in the middle of nowhere. This hiker comes up to us and asks for some directions. And I said, okay, yeah, sure, sure. Get, why don't you get your map out and I'll show you. And this, this hiker said, I don't have a map. I said, well, show me your compass. I'll give you some bearings and you can, I don't have a compass. Now, I didn't say what I was thinking at that moment. Stephen and I talked about it after this hiker headed in a particular direction that we had pointed them to. But I'm thinking, are you kidding? You're going to go out into the wilderness, that wilderness that seeking to undermine your personal health. You got a warning when you started. So often we try to deal with the stress points, deal with the wilderness without a map. And what, what this week, this Holy Week commemorates is Jesus saying, here is a map. But to understand the events of Holy Week, you've got to understand Palm Sunday. So I'm going to take just a few moments and give you, a few years ago I did this, and some of you found it helpful, and so you've asked for it again. So I'm going to take just a minute about just looking at the overall topography of Jerusalem and understanding where this event of Palm Sunday occurred. So would you, would you engage with me just for a second? Okay, all right, take a look at a map of Jerusalem, first century. And they've entrusted this laser pointer to me. They just said, don't point it at, at the people and you're, you're fine. So I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. Just kidding, I'll turn it on and now I will. All right, here we go. This is Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. There's the Temple Mount right there. It's where the temple was. Right here is a fortress called the Antonio Fortress. It's where uh, pilots, uh, battalions would assemble and the population could swell. You guys seeing that? I need interaction right now. You seeing that? Okay. Temple, fortress, Jesus was crucified in the northern part. You have the pool of Bethesda, where this is where the lambs were, were sold for sacrifice uh, on a particular day. And I'll come back to that. Here's a road down to a place called Bethany and Bethpage, which is right around in here. This is the road where Jesus was walking that we're gonna be reading about in just a minute. Now that's the map. Let me show you some photos that accompany that. If you're standing on the Temple Mount, go back to that previous slide just for a minute. If you're standing on this Temple Mount and looking out this way, you're looking, now you can go to the next photo, you're looking at the Mount of Olives. And as you look at the Mount of Olives, you're looking over the Kidron Valley. There's a valley on the right and left. Jerusalem is on a big hill. And that's where you're always going up to Jerusalem. But you look out at the, at the Mount of Olives and you look at what appears to be a bunch of stones. They're not stones, actually. Upon closer examination, you realize they're tombs. Hundreds of thousands of tombs, some of which date back to King David's time in 1000 BC. In fact, archaeologists estimate they're, 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 they're upwards of mil they're millions of them. And it's in the midst of all of these tombs that the events of Palm Sunday were occurring. Because if you go over to the other side of the Kidron Valley and you're standing in the Mount of Olives looking to the west, to the Temple Mount, you're standing in the midst of all of those tombs. 
Now there's a road over there between, from Bethany, Bethpage into Jerusalem. It's where pilgrims would come. And you stand on that road, you get a great view of the Temple Mount. It's a road actually you can walk. And I, this is a photo from a group that I was with a number of years ago. The walls on either side are not original. The tombs all are. The, there was some kind of a wall in Jesus' day because you could not touch or brush up against a tombstone or you'd become ceremonial unclean and your pilgrimage to the, to, to the temple would be nullified. And so there were some type of walls. In fact, they would also whitewash the tombs um, four to six deep on either side so that at night you'd be sure and see your way through and not run into the tombs. By the way, that's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 23 when he says you're like whitewashed tombs. He's he's probably pointing to the Mount of Olives saying you you gussy up on the outside, but on the inside you've not dealt with what you need to be dealt with. Now this road is very narrow at times. It's not a Rose Bowl parade with a grandstand on either side. A lot of people think of of Palm Sunday and all these throngs. There were tons of people there, but a lot of times it was constricted and very, very narrow. Now it's in the midst of those throngs of people that Jesus arrived. If you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn Luke chapter 19, verse 28. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, pick one up as our gift out at the uh, welcome desk, right out in the center on the, on the other side of that wall when we're done. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can either read on the screens or look at our worship guide. Now, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, which was always something that was referred to. You go up to the holy city. It was on that hill. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the hill called Mount of Olives, which is what you and I just looked at, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. That was a common saying of, of Talmudim, of disciples, to the, uh, other people about the, the rabbi needs it, the Lord needs it. People would cooperate because they wanted to help the rabbis as they were discipling their students. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they, and, and they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, and again, that's about where you saw those people walking. By the way, that road is paved about every 10 years or so, but it's never paved on top of tombstones. So you can be assured if you're walking on that road, you're you're walking along the same route that Jesus took on this day. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teach you, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what will bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize 
the time of God's coming to you. That hurricane that's in your heart. You have a goal right now and it's peace. It's what every human being is wired to want. We've got something that tells us this is not how things ought to be. Now Stephen and I, when we were wanting to get to that mountain, that was our goal, but we needed a map to get there. Jesus' entire ministry was saying, here's my map. What's the pathway to peace? He says, follow me. So if I'm going to follow Jesus on this pathway to peace, again, bring that stress point you've got going on right now. Bring it up on the, on the, the lap on your desktop. How do I deal with this? Let me give you three perspectives that taking Jesus' map and that are necessary, that taking Jesus' map will involve. And it addresses a distorted view that we have of a number of things. Let's go over them one at a time going back through this text. If I'm going to follow Jesus on this pathway to peace, it's going to involve an accurate understanding of shalom. An understanding that shalom is internal, it's not external. Shalom is, uh, is the greeting that Jews will give to one. It's one of the greatest wishes. If I look at you and say shalom to you, it's one of the greatest things I can say to a fellow human being. It's not just an absence of conflict. Close to, I think, 300 times you see the, the reference to shalom in Scripture. Very few of them is it referring to an absence of war or conflict. Shalom primarily means an inner sense of wholeness, of restoration of life, the life of the gospel. So to say, I wish you shalom, does not just say, hey, I wish you some different circumstances. It means I wish you a restoration internally in your soul. And what we often don't realize, and it's evidenced in this story, is that these people were, were after a wrong definition of peace. A definition of peace that was about external things, not internal. A lot of us think we want peace and we think, and that's going to happen if I get a different job, if I get a different amount in my bank account, if I get a different family or spouse or a different hobby or a different address or a different vacation. If I change things on the outside, that'll take care of it. And right now, that hurricane in your heart, I'm here to tell you there are plenty of people that have all of those things and the hurricane is still there. I know that for a fact from, from, from my own journey. You know it from yours that we, the more we try, it's like t- chasing that, that sausage at the end of the, um, I mentioned this last night and I won't at the 11 o'clock because I bet very few of you know this, but the old ox cart and they had to hold a fishing pole or something out in front and this is... I'm way, I'm way off base here, but they're holding and dropping that, that sausage and getting the, the oxen. They want to go after it, but can never catch it. Okay, if that didn't make sense, don't worry about it. I won't bring it up at 11. So uh, go back to the text for a minute and look at what Jesus says again in verse 42. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. If you only, if you'd only, if you'd only known. Now, how did he know that they 
weren't understanding the shalom that he wanted to bring. They were carrying palm branches. You say, what's the significance of that? Palm branches were not native to Jerusalem. They had to be brought in from the coast. And they were brought in for the festival of tabernacles. There's a psalm, Psalm 118. Lord, save us. This is from the festival of tabernacles. Uh, Save us. The the Hebrew word there is hoshanah. It's actually two words together. What's that sound like? Sounds like a song that our, our big choir sang a little bit earlier. Hosanna. Hoshanah. It actually came to mean, Lord, save us. Save us. Hoshanah. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. And he has made his light shine on us with, with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Now, it was expected in the Feast of Tabernacles, but not, this was not the Feast of Tabernacles. This was Passover. What were they celebrating at Passover? They were celebrating long ago the Jewish people's liberation from the oppression of Egypt, and they were rescued. Passover over the centuries had become the time to groan as a people and long for a change in circumstances, a change, a release from whatever oppression. The Jewish people have been oppressed over history over and over. The palm branch was a symbol of Jewish national pride. It was on the back of the shekel. Now here's where it came from. I'm going to go, I'm going to show you a chart. You're going to be tempted to say, oh my gosh, there's a lot. It's just going to be a whirlwind tour of the history of Israel. I don't want you to forget about that point of stress because it's going to make a difference in how you and I view how do we achieve peace in our lives. So take a look at it. You ready? Okay, take a look. 1000 BC, David and Solomon. Established Jerusalem, Solomon builds the temple, glorious. The Babylonians in 586 B.C. come in and they take them captive. They go away for exile for about 50 years. They come back, they begin repairing the temple, but it takes a a long time, about 60 years later. But throughout these, these centuries right here, the Persians and then the Greeks... The Persians first and the Hellenists ruled over the people and oppressed them. In 164 BC, a family called the Maccabees led a revolt. The palm branch, once, and they were successful, and they paraded into Jerusalem uh, hoisting palm branches, and so that became a, a symbol of national pride. But and so for about 100 years, prosperity for, for the Jews in Jerusalem. In 63 BC, the Romans conquered it. Herod was one of their puppet leaders. He rebuilt the temple, and in fact, exceeded Solid, the temple of Solomon's glory. He died in about 4 BC, and when that happened, they thought, here's our chance, and a revolt was attempted. About 10,000 Jews were slaughtered. And so each year, and it was around Passover, and each year, that Antonio Fortress I told you to pay attention to, remember? 
Okay. I mean, it, it, Herod would bring in the big guns. Because what was happening at Passover is you had all these people with palm branches that were making a nationalistic statement saying, our circumstances are going to change. This is the year. Our oppressors are going to be conquered. And we've got, we've got a guy who's coming. We've heard about it. We've heard about the miracles that he's accomplishing. And so there's all this tension. You've got uh, the Jerusalem would swell to upwards of almost a million people. That's huge in that day. The garrison, four to 5,000 additional soldiers would be brought in, and the Roman soldiers were brutal. You had the zealots that were passionate, the religious leaders that were all concerned. All of this stuff is going on, and Jesus is winding through these narrow streets, and people are waving these and throwing them down and letting him walk over them, and his heart broke because he said, if only you knew the peace that I could bring you, the type of peace. But what you guys are thinking is that the peace that I came to bring is external peace, to change your circumstances, and his heart was breaking. Peace is not. Shalom is not external. I can get all my circumstances kind of in line, but I can still have that hurricane in my heart. You look at over and over things that Jesus says, like in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. In other words, my peace is not circumstantial uh, manipulation and, and, and transformation. I came to do something far deeper in you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. The crowd was missing it, and Jesus knew it. They didn't have an accurate understanding of shalom. And if I'm going to follow the map of Jesus and find the pathway to peace, it will involve me beginning to understand that that peace is shalom, and shalom is not external, it's internal. And I've, over the course of my life, met people whose circumstances were supposedly perfect, and they were in turmoil on the inside, and then I've met other people that seemed to have nothing. And there's a peace because of their walk with Jesus. There's a second aspect of this pathway. It will involve an accurate understanding of shalom, but also an accurate understanding of Jesus. I'm assuming you're interested in Jesus because you're in church, even if it's in a remote way, saying maybe he, has, maybe he can give me peace for this stress that I'm experiencing. The problem is, we're, so we're tempted to view Jesus as a genie instead of God. And what do you do with a genie? You rub the bottle about three times and he pops out and says, I'll give you three wishes. And he says, I'll do for you whatever I can. You tell me. And that's connected with the first one. If we think that peace is external, then we want Jesus, would you change all this stuff on the outside? Get it all straight. Jesus was making a statement. He wasn't coming to be their genie to be their political leader that would get them out of the oppression that they were under. He was going after something deeper. 
And here's a signal. Look at, back to the text in verse 32 in Luke 19. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. All right, think about that for a second. Jesus' disciples have been traveling probably 100 miles, not as the crow flies, but meandering through to get to Jerusalem for this particular Passover week. So after 100 miles or so, I mean, with Stephen, we made it after 60 miles or so. I didn't then all of a sudden say, hey, let's get a colt. Let's get a donkey. I mean, you made it that far. You got another mile. Jesus is going to, you got 100 miles. Is all of a sudden he's going to say, I'm, I'm bush. Would you guys go get a donkey for me to ride? What was the significance of why he did that? The prophet Zechariah, there are hundreds of prophecies, over 300 in the Old Testament about the first coming of the Messiah. Here's one of them. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You go, go a few chapters later in, 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 in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. On that day... Messiah's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountains moving north and half moving south. On that day, Messiah will come, and he will come riding on a donkey. Jesus got them to get a colt, a donkey, to make an unequivocal statement I am he. I'm not coming in your misguided understandings of some political or military ruler or rescue. I am the one who has been prophesied since the garden. I'm the one that you've been longing for over these 400 years of silence since your last prophet, wondering if I would come. He's saying in the midst of what you're dealing with and all the turmoil in your hearts that you're dealing with, that it's not just from bad circumstances, it's coming from being in a sinful world that has done damaged your humanity, and I am coming as Messiah. I'm here. I'm making a statement. Some scholars say he very possibly only wrote it a few hundred yards and then got off. But he was wanting them to know that I am the king, not your political king. I am the Messiah king. The one foretold in Scripture that would come to heal the brokenness of this fallen planet. I need to begin to relate not with the Jesus that I want who's a genie, but the Jesus who is. And our friend Pat Morley uses that phrase. Not a Jesus of my own concoction, but the Jesus who is. And Jesus was saying, understand who I am. I'm not a genie that will cater to your whims. I am your God. There's a third aspect of this map that will correct some distortion in me. And it has to do with the pathway. My first distortion has to do with shalom. I think it's external often instead of internal. Secondly, I'm tempted to think Jesus is my genie instead of my God. 
And third, I usually think the pathway to peace is manipulating my circumstances instead of submitting to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, on that Sunday, Jesus and his disciples are coming in, and it's powerful to understand why he was coming. He and his disciples were headed to Jerusalem. I'm looking at the clock to evaluate how much time I, I can take to, to give you this. Uh, on Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Now, we know that that year, historians of that year, Passover was on Friday, it was on the 14th day. 10th day and 14th day, that starts on Thursday at sundown. So you back it up from there, the 10th day was lamb selection day. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. This was the day when people were commemorating that God, through the blood of lambs on the lamppost, commemorated their exodus from Egypt and God preserving His people in their journey. What Jesus and His disciples were doing is they were coming to Jerusalem on that day to pick a lamb. And Jesus knew this would be the last time that a lamb would be picked because He was coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So the Lamb of God was coming with His disciples to, to select a lamb just north of the city. And Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to be that lamb. He was not coming as a political leader. He was coming to give up his life as a substitute. First Peter talks about him being that lamb without blemish or defect. You look at the text in Luke 19. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now understand this. For me to receive the peace of God, I first have to have peace with God. Romans talks about being justified, having peace with God. And that peace with God enables me to have the peace of God. Jesus doesn't come to change our circumstances. He comes to heal our hearts and to forgive us of our sin that is part of the root of all of the stress that we're dealing with. Will I come to Him and submit to His work on the cross that is an offense to many? That's the question of Palm Sunday. 
And when Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out, Jesus is using a rabbinical technique called a remez. The, a, a rabbi's disciples would ask him a question, and he would answer them, not giving the answer, but giving a, the scripture a part of whatever scripture would address what their question was. This is a remez, where he only gives a part of something, and they're supposed to know the rest. Now, now disciples and the Jewish people, they knew the scriptures well. When Jesus was saying, if they don't praise me, the stones themselves would cry out. It was not a happy statement. It was a statement of deep grief because it was a remez statement. He was revealing what the prophet Habakkuk had talked about in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 11. The stones of the wall, meaning uh, historians refer to that wall of the temple, will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. When the Babylonians came in 586, that's what they did. They destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus was saying, my people they are rejecting me. They're continuing to rebel against God. They're, they're, they're circumventing the purpose of that God wants to have in their lives and thinking it's all about politics and all about getting the circumstances right and it's not addressing the core and the sin of their hearts. And he, he says it in the very next verse. He says in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. He's already said the stones will cry out. What he's doing is a remez to say Habakkuk the prophet, what he says is going to become true in Jerusalem because of their rejection of me. They'll dash you on the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone in another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He's prophesying what happened in 70 AD when the Romans leveled Jerusalem. Jesus was weeping because they were rejecting why he had come. He knew they would reject him. They, he knew they would reject the type of peace that he was coming to give. He's in Bethany, Bethpage, two times in that area we're told that Jesus wept. In John 11, verse 35, he wept when Lazarus died. You guys remember that? If, you remember, if you've read through John's gospel, we'll get there in our series on John. The other time is this particular moment. The Greek word that's used is translated weeping in John 11 is to, is to weep quietly. He was just weeping because of the fallenness. He weeps for every person in this room and online for the, the junk we have to deal with as we're navigating through this fallen world that seeks to do harm to our human health. He's come to remedy that fallenness. So he's weeping for you guaranteed regarding the stuff you have to navigate through as a fallen world. But here's the question. He's sobbing deeply and loudly because these people were rejecting him in his work on the cross that was to come. They were rejecting the means that he was going to accomplish. Here's my question. Is he weeping for you? I know he's weeping for you regarding your dealing with the fallenness. Is he weeping because you're rejecting who he is? May this Holy Week be a recalibration to say, I want to change my view of what peace is, it being internal, not external. I want to change my view of you, Jesus. Forgive me for seeing you as a genie instead of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I want to submit to you instead of spending all my energy trying to manipulate people around me in circumstances to get me to feel better. When the ultimate cause of my stress 
is living in a sinful world and my participation in that. John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. You're going to encounter circumstances that will seek to do harm to your human health. But take heart. I have overcome the world and the way that he overcame the world is not coming as a military conqueror, but coming as the lion. Yes, but as the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the entire world. Jesus coming on Sunday was coming to die on Friday, to rise again the following Sunday, to validate that everything he had taught was true. And he said, if you will come to me and receive the shalom that I alone can give you, you'll become an overcomer as well. That's the gospel. And that's the power of Palm Sunday. Absolutely. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for the gift that you give us in the gospel. And thank you for the power that you demonstrate by coming and humbling yourself and taking the brunt of our fallenness upon yourself, suffering for something that you didn't do, doing it as the infinite God-man, paying an infinite penalty, so that the darkness that each of us are encountering, those stress points, those hurricanes in our hearts, will tremble. Will tremble not through an earthly display of superficial power, but a cosmic display of your glory, of your ability to redeem, your ability to restore your broken creation. And that starts with us. So we give to you our stress points. We give to you our darkness. And we submit before you. And thank you that you've overcome it. Let's stand together.